Adlib, the York Theatre Royal podcast where we interview industry professionals and get an insight into the theatre world. In this episode, we interview the renowned arts journalist and author Lynn Gardner. Lynn is associate editor for The Stage, where she writes reviews and opinion pieces, and has recently joined the Stage Door app, where she regularly shares her recommendations. One of the things that I think is uh, both interesting and essential is for theatre to think really, really hard about what its purpose is in the 21st century. We once again sat in a cold room in London and asked Lynn the big questions about the current state of British theatre, arts funding and the responsibility of theatre institutions. We were also joined by a special guest. In the form of a man with a drill outside, so we apologise for the sound quality of the interview. Um, so, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about sort of where you came from, how you started, like early days? Oh, I think <laughs> probably like a lot of people, I uh, grew up sort of thinking that maybe that I might act, uh, and then I went to university and realised I really wasn't a very good actor. Uh, what university uh, did you go to? I went to the University of Kent. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but when I was at university, I did a lot of directing, and I really liked that. Um, but I think I would say that I also did some journalism. I had a program on the campus radio. I did some writing, and uh, I sort of, to some degree, knew how you could be a journalist. But I absolutely had no idea how you could be a director, I didn't come from a family which had any connections, never crossed my mind to ask somebody on, you know, who taught one of the courses. Um, and um, and the other thing is that there simply were no role models, you know, uh, people like uh, sort of Deborah Warner hadn't mm. yet come along. And really the only uh, woman director that I knew in any obvious way was Buzz Goodbody who had been at the RSC but of course who had killed herself which didn't seem a particularly good one. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Um, so did you, when you left university, how did you go into theatre journalism? Well in a way that was also an, uh, a slight accident. Uh, again I sort of wanted, uh, you know, a I'd thought of various things that I would like to do, which included obviously theatre, journalism was one of them, and uh, as it's true of so much of my career, and I think of other people's careers, um, it's just luck and being in the right place at the right time. I, you know, I think that whether you're trying to be an actor in theatre or a director or a writer, or whether you want to be a journalist, I think a lot of these things are just to do with having that little patch of sunlight, you know, uh, that sort of smiles upon you and, and warms the place where you are. And in my case, it was um, about the fact that uh, City Limits, which was a breakaway from Time Out, was sitting up. And I went and joined City Limits, and it was there and I got a chance to um, write about theatre. Uh, and I was there from... Uh, uh, the early 80s right through uh, until 1991. Oh, wow. So, very big question, but where do you think we are with theatre at the moment? So obviously, like, the world is what appears to be changing dramatically at the moment, but where do we think, where do you think theatre 
currently is, where and where is it going? That's a really big question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge question because, of course, uh, it depends on. Uh, which theatre you're talking yeah, about and which kind of theatre that mm-hmm. you're talking about uh, because what the West End is doing is very different from what uh, a subsidised house like let's say the Young Vic mm-hmm. might be doing which uh, might be very different from uh, what the Theatre Royal York is doing or uh, you know uh, the Sherman in Cardiff um, so I think that different theatres, depending on where they are, have different identities mm. um, and to some degree have different purposes. But I guess that one of the things that I think is uh, both interesting and essential is for theatre to think really, really hard about what its purpose is in the 21st century. And on occasion, that will be simply to entertain in an absolutely glorious and fantastic and life-enhancing way Um, and I think there is nothing wrong with that whatsoever but I think the fact that we have a lot of theatre buildings scattered throughout the country uh, uh, and I think the fact that um, theatre has uh, a lot of theatre has subsidy means that uh, those who are making theatre need to think very hard about why they are doing it and who they are doing it for. Quite simply, because if you put it brutally, although actually most people in the country pay via their taxes uh, for the arts and for theatre, most people do not actually go to the theatre. Yeah. And so I think those of us who are really, really passionate about theatre and absolutely understand its value, and that value is not just the economic value that it returns to the treasury, mm-hmm. uh, but those of us who understand that, you know, really need to think very hard around uh, uh, how that value uh, can be demonstrated and uh, to a much wider group of people and how a much wider group of people can actually benefit from that subsidy. Um, you've been writing uh, since the 80s about theatre, so how have you found that it's changed and adapted to each decade? Well, of course it changes, and it doesn't necessarily change in terms of each decade. It changes in terms of what administration there is, about whether it's uh, Labour or uh, or Tory. Mm -hmm. Uh, And certainly, um, I would say that uh, British theatre to some degree at the by the end of the 80s particularly regional theatre was down on its knees mm. um, uh, and uh, that was uh, through into the 1990s and uh, uh, the arrival of a Labour government in 1997 absolutely changed uh, that and what we saw was um, not only via the lottery and a large number of capital projects uh, taking place, but also actually much more consistent and much higher funding of the arts. Um, listen, don't get me wrong, of course that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say two things around that, which is one, I think that one of the things that happened during the good years was that often what we saw was 
institutions to some degree empire building mm -hmm. and expanding and that actually uh, it was uh, uh, administrative posts and administration that grew rather and it wasn't necessarily artists who saw the benefit of that that's not entirely true because one of the things that happened was that 25 million pounds went into regional theater uh, in the uh, I think it was in the year 2000 uh, and uh, that had a significant change on regional theatre and it did allow regional theatre to bloom uh, in a way that it previously hadn't. But I think the fact that we can look now in um, uh, uh, 2019 mm -hmm. and look back and see that, for example, in terms of touring fees, the touring fees are pretty well exactly the same as they were 20 years ago. Uh, that about the fact that it's not necessarily artists who have benefited from that. I think what has happened is that organisations have tended to expand. Uh, and I think the cultural shifts that we've seen during the last sort of 10 to 15 years mm -hmm. uh, uh, mean that in fact that those ideas of organize, big organisations and organisations who operate as silos and who don't really collaborate is absolutely on the way out. And, without wanting to be deeply depressing about this, I also think that there is something which I think that maybe theatre has not thought about enough and that it might be that we've sort of had an assumption that once subsidy really sort of got into its flow from the late 70s onwards and uh, into the 80s, that what we would see uh, is continued subsidy. And I think it is perfectly possible that we will look back and that uh, subsidy will be something that lasted for a period of, say, about 50 years. Mm -hmm. So the idea that the Arts Council, you know, in 10 or 20 years' time might necessarily have the kind of portfolio that it currently has, or indeed even that there might be an Arts Council, mm -hmm. yeah? are things that I think that theatre needs to think about a lot more deeply. Now, I'm not for a moment saying, you know, that I think that there shouldn't be subsidy yeah. or that there shouldn't be an arts council. I'm mean, absolutely in favour of both. But I think we need to think about these things, to address these things, and to look about alternatives. Otherwise, I think theatre will be left behind. Do you worry that in this current time of massive uncertainty that people may have less money in their pockets and will be therefore less likely to go to the theatre? Um, of course I worry for the theatre, and I think theatre, like every other um, you know, uh, business, will also be affected, because I think yeah. one of the things that we need to remember is that theatre is a business. Um, and I think that it will be affected in part. I think one of the things that has made British theatre so much more interesting and invigorating and exciting during the last 20 years is that it started to look outwards rather than inwards. It has made much more, many more international connections and collaborations. A lot of those have happened in Europe, so therefore that's um, you know been a really good thing. And anything that may stop that, I think, is kind of problematic. Um, the, your question around the fact that if people have less money in their pocket, 
I think it absolutely depends where it is, because uh, where you are, because the truth is that we have a very uneven theatre culture in terms not just of where it happens, uh, um, uh, but uh, also who goes to the theatre. So, uh, for example, um, in London, you can have a premium seat selling £230, and uh, people think nothing of going to see it. Uh, I think the West End will remain extremely buoyant, whatever happens, because in the same way that high-end restaurants in the West End are packed out with people who are paying, you know, 100 quid each for a meal. Uh, because there are lots of people who are completely unaffected by those uh, economic downswings. And certainly if you look at what happened in 2008 after the last um, uh, 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 economic depression, uh, in fact, uh, after the crash then, uh, in fact, actually the West End sold more tickets and did better. There is really an argument also that, in fact, that people look for escapist entertainment in particular when time, when things are down. But set that against, for example, perhaps somebody who lives in the northeast, who uh, you know has a family uh, on um, two minimum wages. Well, are they going to the theatre anyway? Sure. The answer is probably no, because out of a family budget, possibly spending you know uh, sixty. £70 for the whole family to go to the theatre would be something you wouldn't even think of. And secondly, it's about how much, in fact, actually is available for you to go and see. I mean, one of the things that the Warwick report found is that, um, you know, the richest 10% of the population, may even be less, maybe 8%, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, the richest, uh, rich, most affluent, best educated, um, uh, percent of the population are the people who are most actively engaged in the arts and I think that if you work in theatre or work in the arts well then that is something that is really worrying and that you need to address you know and I think you know that you can't turn around and say oh this is up to the National Theatre to address or it's up to York Theatre Royal to address it so, you know it's up to each and every person who works in the arts and of course some organisations have more power than others but I think quite simply what you cannot do and of course a bit later this year not there will be a spending review so we will know how much each department actually uh, will be getting so we will uh, see what the DCMS will be getting and what that will mean potentially for arts funding. I think it is too late every time that there is um, uh, a potential, you know, a spending review, and uh, for um, you know, arts leaders to come out, mostly all called Nick, and kind of <laughs> lobby uh, for the fact that the arts are important. I think the arts themselves have to prove that to people on a really daily basis. And the truth is that you know, if you are, uh, you know. Uh, uh, subsidised theatre in London or in the regions, if you put on a so-so production of Private Lives, I simply do not think that if the crunch comes and your theatre loses its funding, that people are going to rally round and go, oh yeah, we must save this theatre, it's really important to us, because I once saw this kind of okay production of Private Lives. 
But I do think that actually if they feel that they are engaged with the theatre and their family and their children are involved in projects in the theatre on a daily basis, then I think they will. So you said that um, that they just have to prove that they, you know, they deserve the money and the arts are really important. Have you found, have you got any examples of, you know, the National stepping up and putting on a really groundbreaking production that's made you use all of your faith in the arts restored? Well, I mean, it's not that I think it needs restored because I'm absolutely a passionate yeah. advocate of yeah. it. Uh, but I think some people are proving their worth in more ways than others. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways that we need to think about that is that um, it's a bit like a, um, it's like looking at an iceberg. And what is going on on the main stage of a theatre? Which, oddly, of course, is often how a theatre is judged, mm -hmm. primarily by people like me who are called theatre critics, yeah. Uh, which is that we go and see, um, you know, their uh, production on the main stage and we say whether we think it's good or not. And often then when people talk about a theatre sort of firing on all cylinders, it's because of that work. But actually, that's not really the way to value a theatre. I think the way that we really need to value it is about, uh, like an iceberg, it's everything that's going on under the waterline that you can't see. So, for example, uh, you know, The Young Vic is a terrifically successful um, theatre with an international reputation. But I would say that actually uh, the most important work that it's doing is the work run by Imogen Brody there, uh, which is a strand of work which is called Taking Part. Uh, working with many, many different people uh, within the, uh, the local community and within Southwark. Um, so I think that's a very good example. I think it's about rethinking what it is that a theatre organisation might be. So there's a brilliant um, company who are funded called Slunglow, who work yes. in Leeds, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, they work very specifically in a small area of Leeds, uh, about sort of half a mile or so from the city centre. It's an area called Holbeck, Holbeck? yes, Holbeck. Um, uh, and it's an area that in some ways has been kind of passed by by gentrification and all those things and what have they done this year they have set up a community college yes now some people might turn around and say why and what is a theatre company doing setting up a community college but actually it's about theatre about being a theatre company who is fully embedded in its local community and actually it's hyper local yes um, and which is then seeing what that need is with within that community and that also involves that uh, you know that uh, that they put on shows and they go off elsewhere and they make work with other communities as well but what they are completely and utterly dedicated to is their local community and I think it's about how that spreads out Another example I would give you would be what's happening in Derby under Sarah Brigham. Uh, Sarah Brigham has turned a theatre which sits in the middle of a shopping centre, which at, kind of at night is kind of quite hard to even kind of access in some ways, uh, particularly unless it perhaps it's by car. But she has turned that theatre into what is described as a learning theatre, so it's made 
great links with the University of Derby and uh, people who are on both technical and, um, uh, and drama courses there. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it has um, enormously supportive uh, through in good company of local artists. So it becomes, so it's about turning around, I think, using your subsidy to be a resource a resource for other people, yes? And rather, you see, I think that what happens with a lot of theatre organisations and theatre buildings is that once they become an MPO, uh, that what happens is that their struggle is entirely in order to remain an MPO. Whereas actually, I think what how people need to think is to say, Gosh, I'm sounding so preachy, but um, as though I'm wagging my finger and telling people what to do. But I, I, I just think that it's not about actually uh, trying to uh, make sure that you exist forever, uh, but instead to turn around and say, if we have this resource, how might we use this in the best possible way for other people? And I think that, you know, and it's a bit like, I tell you what it's a bit like. It's a bit like um, that thing, uh, you know, on the internet. Do you link out or do you link in? And I think that theatre needs to learn to always link out. Yeah. Do you think there's, um, if we're looking at London-based theatres versus versus regional theatres, do you think that there's a a difference in whether London theatres reach out more than regional theatres do? I know I think it just depends on uh, individual theatres I think one of the things that again altogether I think uh, is and I think it's perhaps more apparent in London because of the fact that uh, theatres are clustered closer together mm. is about understanding that you are not in competition with people uh, that you are working with people so I think one of the things that certainly happened during the last 10 years maybe less with uh, with London theatres, is um, uh, is that they've understood uh, about not owning artists, mm-hmm. about not owning productions, and about the fact that um, you can gather together and you can, within London, actually tour a production. Uh, not that, Let me put it this way. Not so long ago, if, let's say, somebody saw something at Edinburgh, uh, one particular theatre would say, I want this at my theatre, uh, or at our theatre. And uh, if another theatre, you know, five miles down the road said, we'd like that as well, the artist would have to choose to go to one or the other. Now, actually, you have within London itself sometimes kind of almost mini tours going on. So, uh, you know, a company might go to Battersea Arts Centre and it may also go to the Barbican and it may go to Shoreditch just kind of a mile up the road. And yet what's really interesting is that there is a distinct and different audience for all these different venues. So talking about the Edinburgh Fringe, um, how long have you been going? Oh gosh, uh, since the early 1980s. So how do you do? You think that there's been a pattern and a change in how the fringe? Oh, uh, look, the fringe changes all the time. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, uh, it's like an amoeba, you know. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it it kind of uh, you know it, it stretches out in one direction and then it kind of contracts and stretches out in another. So it's completely organic uh, and. Um, uh, 
goodness, there are so many things which are wrong yes. with the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, and we'd be here for the rest of the afternoon if you wanted me to start listing and talking about that. Uh, but um, what I really don't believe in is when people keep on going, ah, oh, Edinburgh, it's over, you know. Um, and I would say that since I've been going to the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, people have constantly gone, ah, oh, well, it's not like it used to be. And my response to that is, no, it's not, because it's different, yes? Uh, and actually, different can be good. Uh, so, you know, there was a, a period, certainly, um, you know, in the 1990s, when everyone went, oh, comedy has taken it over, you know, completely, and so there's no room for theatre. Uh, then I would say that um, uh, uh, the arrival of um, Aurora Nova at St. Stephen's suddenly meant that um, uh, the physical and visual theatre uh, suddenly became big in Edinburgh in a way that it hadn't and continues to be so. And of course the arrival now of Summer Hall, you know, over the last what, five, six years has been another game changer. So, um, so it's constantly changing. Uh, I, you know, as I say, I think there are lots of things which are problematic about Edinburgh, about how much uh, it costs for companies to go there, uh, how easy it is for venues, producers and programmers to go with their shopping baskets and find work and therefore actually makes them, I think, sometimes a bit lazy during the rest of the year. Uh, and uh, thirdly, I think around young companies feeling that they absolutely kind of, that getting to Edinburgh, that it's boom or bust for them. Uh, and I think that one, we need to make it easier for a far wider range and a far more diverse group of people to go to Edinburgh for whom it is currently just financially completely, you know, off the map. Uh, and secondly, I think we also, as I say, need to look at what those programmers and producers are doing and uh, how, in fact, um, they can make sure that they see new work by young artists uh, over the rest of the year and not just for those three weeks in Edinburgh. How was your experience this year at the French? Was there anything that you were impressed by? Um, well, every year I go and I see uh, shows I really like. Uh, and, and it isn't just about the fact that I see shows that I really like, because this year, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, that shows that um, I would say that I loved. I loved Dressed. I thought that was absolutely um, fantastic. Um, uh, I loved The Breach Show. Um, so, you know, there's always shows where you go, oh, I just really, really love that. Um, but actually, for me, it feels like stocking your larder a bit because it, Edinburgh is often the place where I see something by somebody and actually I often might not review it, uh, but I sort of go, well actually it wasn't great, mm. but there was a few minutes yeah. kind of just in it that I thought were really interesting and it makes me go, I'll go and see that company 
yeah. at some, you know, I'll try and go and see their next show, or if not their next show, their next show but one, you know. I think, um, I think one of the things that we are all enthralled to is almost the idea of the, uh, uh, the overnight hit, the uh, company or the artist who comes from nowhere sort of fully formed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, um, you know, that's a lie to a large extent. Uh, in many cases, uh, uh, people have been flying a bit under the radar and, you know, theatre is a bit, and companies are a bit, you know, a bit like cooking. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't just chuck all the ingredients in and hope that what comes out the pot is going to be really tasty and aromatic. It often needs a few stirs. Um, and I think one of the things that um, does worry me uh, uh, is around the fact I think that companies have become so, young companies have become so fixated on we have got to get to Edinburgh that what they don't think about quite enough is uh, have they got the right and best show to take to Edinburgh so I think that often people go to Edinburgh perhaps you know as a punter and have a great time and then they go next year we're going to take a show to Edinburgh and I think the example of shows that work really well there are people who've thought very hard the example I'd give you would be Brownie Kimmings for example with the sex idiot uh, Brownie had been around for a long time but again flying slightly under the radar and she made Sex Idiot and she thought about it. She thought, I've made something really good. And um, uh, this is a show that I think would do well in Edinburgh. So now is my time to go to Edinburgh. But really, you know, me saying that, it's easy for me to sit here because I think the thing is, um, I think it feels more like a race for young companies than ever. You know, it's not a race. Mm-hmm. And yet people feel that it is and that unless they've got, you know, their careers underway and a kind of hit show by the time they're 25, that somehow they have failed, yeah. So you've reviewed, obviously, professional things and at the fringe amateur things. What do you think, in both of these examples, makes a good show, regardless of the standard? Oh, I, I mean, I don't know is the answer, because if I knew that, I'd be a producer, wouldn't oh. I? And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I would be endlessly taking good shows. But actually, even people who are hugely experienced producers mm. don't know what makes a good show. I mean, it's not as though there is a kind of algorithm where mm. you can go, let's put a bit of this in and a bit of that. I mean, I'm sure somebody will come up with one, you know, uh, and this will be the hit show. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I think... Um, I think in the end, it has to be a show that people really want to make and feel kind of that is driven in some ways by some kind of passion. And I think a show like This Ex Dressed, which is about to go on tour, uh, and which was a big hit in Edinburgh last year, is a really good example of that, of a show in which um, a, a group of friends came together to tell uh, the story of one of their group who had a truly dreadful experience where she was stripped and assaulted uh, while on a trip abroad. Uh, And in a way, the show itself is kind of part of, I suppose, of that healing process. uh, And it is also a show that is not just about that story. It's kind of absolutely multi-layered and about many things. And one of them is actually 
being a friend and how do uh, you know as a friend do you deal with your friend's trauma mm. yeah uh, so you know but you know if you just put that in a way on paper w- would you turn around and say oh yeah that's going to be yeah. one of the hit shows of the festival no I don't think you would as a critic and uh, when you review something if you think it's either good or bad and you have another theatre critic say exactly the opposite does that affect your opinion of the show or how, how do you respond as a critic to another critic who disagrees with you uh, I mean, I don't is uh, on the whole, uh, but what because um, it would seem to me that that's normal and healthy that people because in the end you you know there's no right or wrong when you're writing about theatre, and in the end all I'm doing is going to see a show, and uh, I am responding to it as me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and it's one of the reasons that I don't really like kind of stars and on stage door app where I review now, there are no stars. And that was, you know, the fact that it was a digital platform, uh, because I think old media kind of, you know, to some degree has had its day, uh, uh, was one of the appeals of it. And the another very big appeal was the fact that it doesn't do stars, uh, because stars are such a blunt instrument. Mm. So, um, uh, but so I think the fact that, you know, that people are going to disagree is, uh, healthy because um, you know when I review I'm what I'm reviewing and it is Lynn Gardner's response to it my review is not Henry Hitchens response to it or uh, Matt Truman's response to it or Susanna Clapp's response to it yeah um, you mentioned earlier about the French sort of this nostalgia factor so like with um, Les Miserables at the moment because the, the production is changing do you think People like the theatre industry suffers from like nostalgia and willing so unwillingness to change and adapt at times. Um, well, in some ways, I would say, and I think one of the things that absolutely characterises often uh, uh, small, unfunded companies is about the fact that they're enormously nimble. They're very fleet yeah. of foot. They're very capable of adapting and changing. And you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about subsidy, I have. Uh, you know, one of the things that gives me uh, hope is about the fact that I think that, uh, you know, the younger companies, people who are in their 20s, uh, people like you who are going to be kind of, you know, coming out of the university and making theatre over the next few years, I think uh, a lot of you kind of simply going, we may be able to access a bit of funding here and a bit of funding there. But absolutely, you don't see your future about the fact that, you know, uh, that eventually you will become an MPO. I think for lots of people, that just simply is off the table. They, they don't entertain it. Whereas I think that if you were a theatre company uh, starting, uh, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, your assumption would be that, uh, you know, we spend our 20s being, you know, uh, uh, trying to uh, access what money we can and then uh, at some point, um, you know, we hope that we will become an MPO. Um, So I think that is, um, you know, quite a good thing. I think I've lost the thread of what you were asking Um, me. So with... because I was reading the stage uh, last week about uh, Les Miserables. How oh, yes, about Les Miserables. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there is a nostalgia. I once did something very interesting, which was that um, uh, I looked at uh, 
some productions which had become quite legendary that like if you mentioned people people go oh yeah I remember that that was extraordinary wasn't it and when I looked back at kind of what the contemporary responses were and often what the reviews were actually they had been sometimes less than fulsome and which made me think that there's something becomes burnished in your mind about theatre that theatre often doesn't get worse in your mind mm. when you think about it that it often gets better I think the thing over Les Mis is uh, kind of particularly interesting because that is a production that, of course, has a lot of super fans, yeah, people yeah. who have seen it over and over. And, of course, it's been going for so long that what happens is that people go and see it maybe with their parents and then they went and took uh, um, uh, on a kind of, you know, when they've been dating somebody for a while and so they take them to see it there. Then it becomes part of their family because they then take their kids to see it when their kids are like, you know, nine or ten. So something happens where you become very, very invested in it. And I think it's perfectly understandable that people want, therefore, to keep it the same as it is in their mind. But the truth is that theatre that stays the same over years and years and years, you know, is, uh, is theatre that's become embalmed, it's theatre that's dead. You know, uh, I think one of the things that, you know, we quite clearly know uh, from uh, uh, whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's plays that we consider to be classics is that you have to reinvent them all the time because that's the only way that you keep them alive otherwise they're just you know dusty tomes on a on a on a library bookshelf for academics to study so talking of classics do you think that there are potentially uh, too many classics the classics at the minute uh, not enough of a focus on new writing or have you noticed that there's been a shift and new writing is coming to the big stages well, I, I mean, I suppose what I would say about that is that, for me, new writing is a really, really broad church. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, by new writing, I, didn't, uh, I wouldn't say that means a, you know, the latest play from Simon Stevens or from Alice Birch. I mean, it is those things, but I think new writing can also be work that's been devised, that's been scripted. I think, you know, the fact that we've... Uh, moved towards kind of the national and having a new work department rather than the literary department I think is a good thing because I think it gets away from the idea that uh, uh, that new writing is only the single authored script that sort of plops through the letterbox uh, uh, well probably not now they probably then plops into the uh, into the inbox um, so uh, I think that's uh, change and I think it's all good I think it's all healthy uh, and um, I think that a theatre that is uh, really diverse in terms of kind of sub styles and mix and form is a healthy theatre uh, I think we've absolutely seen sort of periods when um, you know, sometimes it feels as though new writing is to the fore, and some uh, sometimes it feels as though other forms uh, are, are, are to the fore. But you know, what I really, the reason I'm sort of wary of that kind of question is that I think it sets them up in, you know, things up in opposition mm. yeah. to each other, uh, and around that idea. And I think that's particularly true when funding is scarce. 
you know, about that idea that, uh, oh, you know, why is it all going to circus when, uh, <laughs> and what does that mean for, uh, for new writing? Actually, we need all of it. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that we've been very good at in this country is indeed the kind of single authored script. But I also think one of the things that's really interesting uh, is that we have a generation of writers, and not all of them young, because Simon Stevens would be a really good example, who are prepared to work much more collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I'm thinking of, like, you know, how uh, perhaps Alice Birch works with Katie Mitchell would be a really good example of that. So I think it becomes harder and harder, and I think that's a good way about um, being able to identify who did what, who is responsible mm-hmm. for what. I mean, I just went to see last week, you know, Frantic Assemblies, The Unreturning, mm-hmm. written by Anna Jordan. And, uh, you know, you can only look at that as a kind of cohesive whole. You know that somebody directed it and somebody wrote it and you can see that some people are performing it and some people designed it. But in a way, it's a kind of form of total theatre. And uh, I think that's kind of very, very exciting. So what's uh, your favourite thing that you've seen in the past year? Oh, um, I mean, impossible to actually say because there will be so many things and it's constantly shifting. People actually often make that question even worse. They say to me, what's your favourite thing you'll ever see? Uh, and uh, uh, of course it changes. Um, I, I would say uh, something that I thought was absolutely fantastic, uh, which isn't just a sort of one show, but was the reopening of Battersea Art Centre's uh, Grand Hall. And I think the reason why that was so kind of moving and exciting uh, was about the fact that uh, it's um, people's passion and the way people rallied round when that building burnt down and the way local people absolutely kind of, you know, came in and helped and that makes you realise that that's what happens when a theatre is absolutely completely embedded in its local community. People think that it really matters. And there was a show on in that first season made by Brownie Clemmings called I'm the Phoenix Bitch. Uh, which was about her experience of uh, motherhood and postnatal depression and it's coming back again uh, early this year so uh, that's both a show I really loved in the context in particular of the opening of the Grand Hall uh, and which you can see uh, again. So do you have any advice for any budding theatre critics or just people going into the arts in general? Oh, well, I mean, they're two very different things. Yes, they are. Yes, yeah. You know, I absolutely think that it is possible to make a career in arts journalism, mm-hmm. and I think it will be in the future. But I think it will be different from the journey that people like me had, or even actually uh, the journey of people who are currently in their thirties have had. Uh, and so, I think that you know. Um, if you want to do it, then do it. Uh, but uh, I think you have to be really, really flexible. Um, and I think in terms of the fact that, uh, and I suppose in terms of um, uh, people entering the profession, well, then, yeah, you know, do it. In a world that's so uncertain, it's not as if getting a job in a bank is going to be secure. So if you want to make theatre, then go out and make theatre. and. Tried, yeah. Um, but 
you know, if you are going to do it, do it actually because you have a real passion for it, because you've got something to say, and you think that theatre is a way that you really genuinely can change the world. That's such a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Lynn. Thank you, Um, both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Lynn for her time. We really enjoyed chatting to her. You can find Lynn's articles on the Stage website and on the Stage Door app. Another great place to keep up to date with Lynn is on her Twitter, at Lynn Gardner. Join us next week when we talk to Flo Buckeridge, a senior producer at National Theatre Live. If you like the podcast, then please give us a nice review and tell your friends and family where to find us. See you soon. Bye. Bye.